an excerpt of All the President's Men, written by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. Barry Sussman, the city editor, was intrigued. He dug into the Post's library clippings on Colson and found a February 1971 story, which an anonymous source described Colson as one of the original backroom boys, the brokers, the guys who fix things when they break down and do the dirty work when it's necessary. Woodward's story about Hunt, which identified him as a consultant who had worked in the White House for Colson, included the quotation and noted that it came from a profile written by Ken W. Clawson, a current White House aide who until recently was a Washington Post reporter. The story was headlined, White House Consultant Linked to Bugging Suspects. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is, well, someone who essentially made the Rogue One to Star Wars for All the President's Men, uh, which is, uh, and incredibly, it's her first feature-length screenplay, um, which is kind of insane. Uh, she's a producer, has written the teleplays for a couple of the absolute banger episodes. 2.5 was my absolute favourite of Mindhunter, was the writer of comedy and uh, makes you believe about love, according to former guests of this show, Maria Lewis, uh, uh, the long shot. Um, and I've since found out in just talking to her, is also a fan of Heat, so much so that she ran dialogue with her agents at a dinner with her husband and for me, if that's if, if her credentials aren't enough, Golden Globe nominee, WGA nominee, if those credentials aren't enough, she's basically worked with you know some of the titans of film in just a very short part of her career. And she's four months younger than me, which is just <laughs> another piece of insanity. Ladies and gentlemen, all the President's Minutes would not have been complete without Liz Hannah. Liz, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thanks for having me. It's super exciting. I like the the Rogue One comparison. I'm I'm, I'm going to tell my buddy Gary Witter. I basically <laughs> tell, wrote his movie. <laughs> you tell Gary Witter, a great Australian comedian and podcaster, Alexi Toliopoulos, uh, gave me that. He's like, like okay. he's like, it's like the post is Rogue One, and I'm like, <laughs> it, it it just struck me like lightning. I was like, oh my, oh my god, it is, it is, it is playing in that same sandbox as people being inspired. But, you know, there are so many people that are going to talk on this show, filmmakers and film critics and journos, but like you as someone who picked up Kay Graham's autobiography and just, and were prodded into it, I believe, by your husband. Is that right? He was like, you need to yeah. adapt this. It was a little bit of both. So I had read her uh, autobiography, Personal History, when I was like 22 and was like obsessed with it. Like I, I just found it really striking to like read about somebody and hear somebody's voice that was frankly 50 years older than me at the time but felt so relevant to my life and the things she was reflecting on and so I was like this has to be a movie but you know I was a I was 22 and b I was dumb at or both <laughs> things so I guess that's just that's just reiter- that's a, a reiteration I actually um, don't know how I dress myself until I was 25 so like I think we could all just agree I'm not that- sure how I dress myself now so like <laughs> let's just be happy that the 20s are gone um but so I uh I I went you know went to write full-time when I was um a few years later and then spent like a few years not selling anything and was like writing stuff and trying to get my career going, but it really wasn't happening. And my uh, now husband, then boyfriend was like, and I was really frankly depressed. I was like, I, I can't get going. I can't get any traction. I'm not writing the things I want to write. Like, I think maybe I'll just go back to working in development, which is what I had done before I started writing. And he was like, well, before you do that, you should probably write that movie about Catherine Graham that you've been talking about 
for literally five years. <laughs> um, and so I uh, finally listened to him and spent, I, which I, you know, I've been researching the movie for years. I just had not sat down to write it. Finally sat down to write it in the summer of um, 2016. And then by um, May of 2017, we were shooting the movie. Number two, on, cr- number two on the blacklist, Amy yep. Pascal. I, I yeah, so I basically uh, set myself up for all failure in the rest of my life. No way this happened. You know, I I wrote the scripts. Amy Pascal bought it. Uh, called me at midnight on a Friday night. Um, one penny. Can uh, I ask you a question? Because you hear these crazy things. It's my favorite thing to hear about when people like Amy Pascal's on the phone. Or like you answer the phone, like I just, I can't imagine. And, and you know, I've had some surreal moments myself in podcast production or even just people that I'm talking to. So-and-so's on the phone. Amy Pascal at midnight is on the phone. You're like, like my first inclination, and this might be very Australian, but be like, fuck off and just hang the phone, immediately hang the phone up. A hundred percent off <laughs> would naturally be my inclination. Um, I've had I've had subsequent very strange phone calls. Uh, this is definitely one of the weirdest because she was actually buying my script and telling me we were going to make it. Um, and, you know, like it, it was just very weird. And then it was also four or five days before the election in the U.S. Um, where, you know, it was yeah. didn't go the way we thought it was going to go. Um, no. And really, I, I think, you know, I, 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 frankly, Amy and I both were just stunned and thought we were going to make a movie about a woman finding her voice at the time that, you know, we had elected a president of the United States who was a woman and we were all rallying behind her and that turned out not to happen. And for a very brief moment, I was like, does anyone want to see this movie? Like, is there any reason that we should make this movie? It turns out everybody hates women. Why would they (laughs) watch this? Uh, And Amy was like, absolutely not. We have to make this movie even more. And so then uh, we, it, it, then after that was on the blacklist. Number two, it was really crazy. My, my career was taking off. It was amazing. It was sort of giving me everything I wanted. We weren't really getting bites from directors. Like directors, we'd send it to some very high level directors. Had never sent it to Steven Spielberg because he was literally making another movie at the time. He was in, in pre, he was preparing to make another movie. And um, then Trump. Uh, was inaugurated and went to the White House and gen- genuinely from then on it was like um, lightning hit because Tom Hanks uh, sends uh, an espresso maker to the White House press um, room every time there's a new administration <laughs> and when he sent it he put a Ben Bradley quote on it um, Meryl did a speech where she spoke about journalists and she spoke about freedom of the press and Stephen, who had been prepping this movie, couldn't find the lead of the movie, who was like this seven-year-old boy and had been searching far and wide for this kid for months and months and months and couldn't find him. So in this sort of crazy weekend, they all got the script and within, you know, 72 hours had agreed to do the movie and we were literally <sighs> shooting in less than 10 weeks. 72 so a- hours. What the hell yeah. was your head doing in that 72 hours? Were you well, dr- the, did it feel like you were drunk? Like you, I kind of was because I was really sick at the time. <laughs> like I was like I had the, the the worst part. I mean, the funniest but worst part of the story is that I had like one of those end of the year or like beginning of the year like horrible flu cold things. Yes, and so was like hallucinating for three days. <laughs> so this was like a horrible time to be told that Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep, and Steven Spielberg were going to do your movie because I was like, I'm just it's not real. 
I'll wake up. It's fine. And then finally, like Amy made me come to her office at like six o'clock at night. And I was like, I'm on so much cold medicine. I can't drive. So my husband had to drive me. And I was in the room in her office and she was like, Stephen and Tom and Meryl are going to do it. We're going to dedicate the movie to Nora Ephron. We're going to shoot this movie in 10 weeks. And I was like, I'm super confused. <laughs> you know, it was like, it's like you get hit by a bulldozer. Um, and so, yeah, it was crazy. It was, it was a super crazy experience. And when we were in theaters, you know, less than a year later, I mean, the whole thing was just a whirlwind. Yeah. I was going to say from the time that you, you know, Trump is inaugurated, I think, in Australia, because uh, I'm part of an international film society, I think I saw it in December. We got a screener in December. Yeah. So, like, for it to be yeah. running like that, yeah. like, is, is... I sold it I sold it in November of 2016. We were in theaters December of 2017. Oh, my god! It was crazy. Super crazy. I, you know, it turns out you don't need sleep to survive. <laughs> um, really just run on adrenaline at all times. Um, I also, in the midst of that, got engaged and got married. So I made great keeping life it, choices. Keeping it really poor quiet. planning choices. Keeping it yep. real quiet, um, not you. Yep. Keeping it just really simple. You know, it was just a really simple year. Yeah. <laughs> but then it prepares you to go off and do basically everything else. Yeah. I mean, I the, the greatest thing about doing that movie was, aside obviously from it jumpstarting my career and it being um, – everybody that you've ever admired on that set. I mean, it was, you know, my co-writer Josh Singer who came on like, I think like eight weeks before we started production. Sorry, my dog is barking in the background. Um, uh, so Josh Singer came on, Janusz Kaminski shot it. Um, Rick Carter was our production designer. He, uh, Ann Roth was the costume designer. I mean, it's, it was an insane uh, amalgamation of people. And so I, but of all that, they're all really lovely people who really want to do their jobs so their lives are better, not the not that their jobs are their lives. And yes. that was like a really interesting, important distinction and lesson to learn when I was first getting into my writing career and particularly a, a career which I'm very thankful for the last three years has been really busy and being able to learn that balance very early on. And, you know, Rick... Um, would take me aside like every other day and just be like, take it in, like, just take it in, understand that this is crazy. Understand that like you were at your dining room table writing this less than a year ago, but like appreciate it and not letting me, and he wouldn't let me, you know, kind of get lost in all of the craziness. Um, and so it was this really amazing experience, but I, I would say foundationally aside from teaching me how to really be a professional writer really taught me how to, manage my life or, or at least try to manage my life. You can call my husband after this and see if I actually do a good job of it. But, um, you know, I went, I, we, we stopped, we wrapped shooting of, of, uh, the post on a Sunday. I started work on long shot on a Monday. Um, and we were in production in that, um, it was like August, like eight weeks later. And then, um, which they had been prepping that movie. I came on to do the, to, to work on it in pre-production. And so that movie was like, I think eight or 10 weeks after I came on, they were in production. And then, uh, I was doing Mindhunter actually throughout all of it. I had, I had signed on to do Mindhunter, um, in the middle of production on the post. And then that carried through sort of to the last two years. I mean, I wasn't, I, I didn't really stop until it dropped on Netflix and it was like, 
There it is, everybody. There's, there's, there's three <laughs> years of my life done. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it was, and, and I had a couple other movies I was working on at the time and one that I shot um, last year, which was really exciting and comes out. Um, I, I, I adapted a book called All the Bright Places. Yeah, while I An- another, another Netflix one that we're going to see in 2020. Exactly. It uh, comes out uh, everywhere. I think in, it, it'll be in Australia and the US um, on February 28th. And so we shot that uh, in Cleveland, Ohio in 2018, probably. Maybe we'll say that. We'll say 2018. <laughs> we'll say 2018. Um, and that was really exciting. I mean, and so. Uh, and what's, been- co- what's cool and also infuriating about Netflix is that we have no idea that that even exists and that you've even done that in 2018 until like maybe December 2nd last year, they did that big like tweet thread of like, hey guys, this is all the amazing things that you can look forward to this year on Netflix at an undetermined time at the moment. And they just dropped that epic list that which had um, all the right places on there too. It's like that epic list of like who's involved and who's the writers and who are the directors. And these are all these great people that you can be looking forward to. It's super, super crazy experience. Like I've not had, I've not obviously made a movie with Netflix, which is a different experience than, doing TV with them. Um, and particularly Mindhunter, you know, I only did season two. So there was kind of a, everything had been kind of kinked. The There's, a machine. Worked out. There's a machine there. There's a machine going and, and David Fincher, who is a genius and, and wonderful collaborator uh, and teacher. And, and a big fan uh, of William Goldman and this movie. Humongous. A- I, I, he and I have had many a William Goldman conversations, <laughs> so I can attest to that. Um, and he, uh, he really deals with all that. So I didn't, I didn't really have to deal with a lot of the release stuff for bright places. I was like, what do you mean we're not going to release a trailer until two weeks before we start shooting <laughs> or start, so, so it delivers on the service. And, um, it's just not a process I understand, but they have it down to a science. They get it. And like the way they talk about it is so fascinating from like an intellectual standpoint. And then from a creative standpoint, I'm like, uh, yes, but I'm getting bombarded with tweets from people who are like, can we see the trailer? And I'm like, man, I can't help you. Can't help you. I can't so, help you. Netflix, Netflix yeah. is going to, two weeks out, they're going to tell you when it's coming, like confirm yep. that it's coming. And, I, and, and I, here's a trailer. And then, but, and then guess what? You'll be able to watch it forever, it turns out. So yeah. <laughs> there you go. Forever and ever. I love there's one thing that Ted Sarando said, which is like, is both kind of awesome and scary, is uh, the our, our biggest competitor is sleep. And I was just like, wow, 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 <laughs> not to forget be fair, Am- my biggest, <laughs> my work's biggest competition is sleep as well, yes. because that's what the only other thing I'd like to be doing generally, <laughs> uh, or the only thing I'd like to be doing, but, um, wow, that's crazy. Yes. That's yeah. Cause crazy. they were talking like, uh, obviously now in a. I guess we're sort of, you know, with the Peacocks and the HBO Maxes and the Disney Pluses and Amazon Prime, like really flexing up to original content and things like that. Like the streaming ecosystem is going to change in the next couple of years, like how big an impact that's going to be. But, you know, one thing that they talk about is like, no, like Abby's competitive sleep. Like we, we, we dial people in. We know the, you know, we don't have to release it necessarily, but we know people's algorithms. We're firing straight into their recommendations. We're producing films that are just going to land with people, same act, you know, similar actors. It's like that HBO thing. Like you watch a HBO show and you might love, you know, for example, if you love The Wire, you like watch The Watchmen and you just are so excited yeah. that people from The Wire are in it and people from Deadwood are yeah. in it. And like Netflix have a little bit of that with their acting backgrounds and stuff like that. But totally. it's like, it's, it, you know, yeah, it's insane. And, and just the, well, uh, I don't- you, a lot of, 
you know, a rom-com on Netflix that's good, like your upcoming movie, they just get eaten up. And then you can watch it by yourself. Like, there's no, like, cinema. That's the great thing is, like, I remember my older sister, you know, there's that, like, sitting in your Jimmy Jamos, like, eating ice cream on the couch with a blanket, like, sadly watching Mm -hmm. rom-coms. Like, you don't actually even have to go to the movies to do that anymore. That's your movie on a Friday night when it drops in February. It's like, people can go straight to that level. It's true. And it's like, I I have to be honest, you know, I I actually find um, the theatrical experience really great really rewarding i love going to see a movie in theater but like the people <laughs> like i the talking in a movie theater the like etiquette of being in a movie theater has changed since i like mm. have gone gone and that's really frustrating to me like fr- like it's really frustrating to me and i live in los angeles and so you would think that people like actually want to watch a movie and it's like every movie i go see somebody's talking in the movie theater or whatever i'm sounding so much like a hey get off my lawn old woman but <laughs> you know what what is it it's my job but so anyway so like I, it's really uh, it is really interesting i also think to see what people will pay to see in theaters versus like what really does work on a streaming service and um i'm really excited to be releasing this movie on netflix i think it really you know the movie is is about um Two kids, uh, well, two teenagers, Elle Fanning, Justice Smith, and it's really about both. Um, great, by the way, love Justice Smith. They're in, Elle, Elle they're, Fanning is so terrific. She's terrific. They're insanely talented, and we were so fortunate to get the two of them in this movie, and that they had such phenomenal chemistry and worked mm. so well together. And um, and so, you know, it's about their characters kind of discovering each other, falling in love through um the reality of dealing with trauma and the dealing with um, mental illness and and mental health and you know i think those were things that we wanted to treat really really with a a responsible stick i would say and and be as uh be as informed as we could and i'm really proud of it you know i think it'll be it's a it's a i'm just gonna prep people and say it's a little bit of a tearjerker so just get (laughs) yourself prepared um but it's for me it's like it's genuinely one of the best experiences i've had making a movie and uh the director brett haley is fantastic and he's like he's at times my big brother and at times my little brother and that's probably exactly how it should be (laughs) exactly well i mean look you you have kind of had the insane career of already like yeah, I've already worked with Fincher and Spielberg and Streep. So no, there's no situation would be intimidating for you as a writer and a collaborator on set. You're like, I've kind of been with the people who are pretty much the best at doing this. So we're good. We're, we're fine. You we- can think every now and then you get thrown a curveball and you're like, huh, all right. So you are going to keep me on my toes. All right. I see you. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Well, look, yeah. we have to, we're going to dive into the minute that we're going to yeah. talk about here because it's amazing. And then... Uh, I'd love to hear, you know, personal history by Miss Graham um, is is such like the Watergate story is so omnipresent in her life as it is in all of the people's collaborators. You know, Woodward Bernstein, Bradley, like everyone who touched this, this is their life. And so um, it's going to be incredible to hear you talk about it. This is one of my favorite little moments in this sequence. And I think, you know, for folks who are listening to One Heat Minute Productions and are listening to Increment Vice and um, are going scene by scene, for me, um, every moment of this entire preliminary investigation by Woodward is electric. There is some moment, like accelerated heartbeat moment in every single part of it. 
And this little summation point, especially because Woodward, um, I think Liz and I said off air, it's like, he, he's not good yet. He's not Bob no. Woodward as we know. He's still yeah. growing into who he is. Um, and there's just, I don't know, there's, I really want to dive into not only all of the beautifully like pacing of the dialogue and the dissemination of information, but there's just nothing like, this whole movie is people supporting people who are passionate and hungry and maybe not great. Um, mm-hmm. And I love this for that scene. And I love the supportive nature of like lifting him at this moment. Um, and these two guys and I just, yeah, this scene's electric. So we're going to watch the minute now together. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Certainly it comes as no surprise to you that Howard was with the CIA. No, no surprise at all. Hunt worked for the CIA till 1970. From 49 to 70. Now, this is on deep background, but the FBI thinks he's involved with the break-in. What else you got? According to White House personnel, Hunt definitely worked there as a consultant for Colson. That's Charles Colson, the prison special counsel. Did you call the White House press office? I went over there. I talked to them. They said Hunt hadn't worked there for three months. Then a PR guy said this weird thing to me. He said, I'm convinced that neither Mr. Colson nor anyone else at the White House had any knowledge of or participation in this deplorable incident at the Democratic National Committee. Isn't that what you expect them to say? Absolutely. So, I never asked about Watergate. I simply asked what were Hunt's duties at the White House. They volunteered he was innocent. When... Oh, such a great line to end with. I love that line. <laughs> there's very, it's, there's sometimes when I do this and I like, it's like this freakish thing where it's actually made for that minute. It's made to end mm-hmm. on that moment. They volunteer, you know, volunteer. I was a... watching it like <laughs> as a whole. And then I love that line. I've always loved that line. Um, and I had to go back and make sure that it was in the minute because I was like, oh, Fuck, Please. if this is like the next minute, Please. then it's going to be really screwy. Oh, there's some there's some agonizing ones that have happened in the past that are really infuriating, like halfway through a line being cut and you're like, God damn it. <laughs> really want to talk about it in this minute. That's okay. But I'm so going to move you just real quick so I can plug my computer because it turns out it's dying. Hold on one second. Oh, no, we'll be... All right, go for it. There we are. We're, we are back. They volunteered he was innocent before anyone asked if he was guilty. <laughs> uh, what a line. What an amazing line to end on. What a great little exchange. And I love, even in the minute that leads up to yours, Liz, I love that line reading from Redford where he's like, and the CIA. Like when someone gives you information yeah. and you pretend like you're totally across he's it. He's like, no, not surprised by that at all. Not surprised. Um- <laughs> It's, it's, I think the dialogue, I mean, just because it's starting on the last line of the scene, but is really, I think, the sort of fundamental line of that scene and is really, in terms of plot, the thing that propels the rest of this story because he has now discovered that people are thinking about Watergate mm. absent of him bringing it up and people are thinking of this person in involved in Watergate without him bringing it up. So he's like, he got a clue. It's our clue moment. And it's such a well-written, simple line of dialogue. It's not like, there's nothing that spectacularly written about it. You know I mean? In terms of like flourish in terms of anything, but it's so, this is what I love about simple dialogue. That's what I love about William Goldman. 
It's what I love about Sorkin does it, you know, sometimes, but often. Um, I mean, You Can't Handle the Truth is an ex- exceptionally simple line, but it's getting to the emotion of it and the point of it. So I think this line, the, the they volunteered he was innocent nobody a- when nobody asked if he was guilty, and the way Redford delivers it is so both innocent and smart. And it's kind of like the first time he's really smart in this movie where yes. he's like, he's just had his, is... he's just had his massive dressing down a fantastic dressing down. Oh, and has yeah. to, he has to address that with Jack Warden's Harry Rosenfeld and Jack Warden, who is usually a big scene chewer. Like yeah. how selfless is it to just sit there in this scene from him as an actor? Like, it's like, he don't have a line of dialogue in this scene for such a long time. And just to like, to not well, and by along. the way, the Charles Pollock chair in the background has more screen time than he does. <laughs> it's like the bright orange <laughs> Pollock chair in the background. And uh, no, I mean, it's he, his previous scene where he dresses him down is so great, oh where he's God. just like, oh my God, kid, like this is real. Don't tell anybody else you don't know this. Um, and I love the part where when, when Redford turns him says, that's Charles Coulson, the president's special counsel, which is like. And he just gives him a little wry smile. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, it's, it's takes a lot, I think, to sit in that scene. It's funny in the post, there's a scene very early on. It's the first scene of um, Ben Bradley and his journalists. And it's when they're finding out that they're not going to be able to go to Nixon's daughter's wedding because they've been disinvited. And um, there's like six people in the scene. And there's like, maybe there's like five people in the scene, but it's, you know, Bradley and four reporters and like no one really speaks until like halfway through the scene. But you've got like Bob Odenkirk standing in the background, just chilling. And you're like, we should probably have Bob Odenkirk say something. But like <laughs> Bob, I think great actors and particularly great actors at an ensemble, which this movie obviously is uh, a Redford and um, Hoffman movie, but like the the ensemble, how do you not talk about Robards? How do you not talk about everybody else in this? Um, is is so fundamental to it, and that was so true of the post. You know, Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep were leading this movie, but the amount of people we had in that film, like when I tell people the rest of the list, because they forget now. It's difficult. <laughs> yeah, no, we also had Bob Odenkirk and Sarah Paulson and Carrie Coon and Tracy Letts. And the sundry of other people that I'm, I'm blanking on. Also, because... can I just say I'm so uh, so happy for you to be part of the like. I, there needs to be a like a reconnaissance equivalent of just putting Tracy Letts in movies and watching oh. how awesome Tracy Letts is in just like everything. Like it's like Little Women, Lady Bird, Ford v Ferrari, The Post. Like just put him in more movies. He is literally amazing in everything that he does. He's phenomenal. He's also wonderful. And like, it's really intimidating when you're a writer and Tracy Letts is there. <laughs> yeah, it's pure surprise winning offers. Just, <laughs> like, oh, yo, you wrote like, August Osage County. Yeah, that wasn't influential yeah, or, or anything. Oh, it's, I haven't read that play a dozen <laughs> times. It's totally fine. Oh, you're also an exceptional actor. Great. Thanks so much. Um, I'll just see myself out. Um, there was like one scene when we were doing the post. Uh, a, a boardroom scene and Tracy came up to Josh and I and was like, do you guys, do you mind if I just like change a couple lines here? And we were like, do you want to change all of them? Like, please, do, would you like the laptop? Would you like the final draft file? Would you like to do a pass? You could do anything you want, Tracy. And he kind of gave us this look and we were like, oh no, yeah, you can change those lines. And he was like, okay, great. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think it, it takes a lot to be, you know, a, a wonderful actor and 
and somebody who's used to commanding their own presence to sit silently in the back of a room. Mm. I would say probably if you're standing next to Robert Redford, you might be might be okay with it. Um, yeah. But especially uh, at this time. Yeah, especially. I mean, the crazy thing about this movie is like Redford optioned it himself. Redford made this movie like on his back, and they made this movie also like. I want to say three years after Watergate. I mean, it came out really quick. Yeah, it's it's 1976 is when it's released, and if you if you look at the reviews, they're January. So like it's potentially December 75, like you know, first of January 1976 is you know Roger Ebert's review. So you kind of go, okay, well let's gauge it from like who are the big critics working at the time. And so it's very, very early 76. So then it's really 75 and it's being produced in yeah. 74. So while they're not only producing All the President's Men and, the, and then both men, as in Woodward and Bernstein, are writing the final days and reporting on mm-hmm. the final days and assembling mm-hmm. these things, they're doing all their they're pre-prod. They're just doing yeah. all pre-prod, getting things done, casting, all this crazy stuff. And it's just like and immersing themselves in at, at, at Washington Post and doing that. It's like... That is a really surreal, you know, I think what you said that really resonated with me earlier in our conversation was like, I'm reading Catherine Graham's book and it's resonating with me and she's 50 years older than me. And what I think is so crazy about this film is that it's so resonant, it's so powerful, it says so much. And these guys are like making it so hot on the heels, which is really perilous. Like you think Mm -hmm. that so many movies making movies that are hot on their heels don't have any of that cognitive distance to like think about it, you know, and you know, you work with the great Steven Spielberg. It's like when he makes Lincoln, he's got, you know, hundreds of years and countless accounts Mm -hmm. of his entire life to think back and look on even bridge of spies, you know, which is Mm -hmm. obviously narrativized. You can play with that. There's so much material, but yeah, I I just think God to be in it and producing it. It It's just sounds sounds truly horrible. It sounds honestly (laughs) awful. It sounds awful. I, I'm, it's really, uh, it's aside from it being an impressive piece of work, it sounds horrible to be doing that. Um, and so cheers to them for taking that on and actually making this movie that it's, you know, people always, um, ask me about the post if I was a journalist, like if that's where it came from Mm. and it's like, no, I just watched all the process men a lot. And so (laughs) I was uh, just, I was really obsessed with them. Um, but like I, you know, I, I think this movie is fascinating in a lot of ways. It's really the distinction between this and the post, and it was something, you know, Alan Pakula movies was actually sort of in general the thing that was really inspiring me tonally when I was writing the post and having it be sort of a '70s political thriller that we didn't see anymore. You know, those are my favorite movies. Yes, um, Pakula is probably the master of that that era. And, and, and everyone that. who does those movies is contending with Pakula. Like you look at the conversation, the the conversation that comes out, that's Coppola doing a Mm Pakula-ish movie and, and, you know, even Michael Mann who does The Insider, which I think is like, it's like this step relative of these movies that's made, you know, in exactly the same style, but just taking a completely different modern contemporary corporate malfeasance Mm -hmm. take on Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. I mean, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go, go. Yeah, please. I was going to say, and, you know, if you look at A Few Good Men, which is sort of mm. a courtroom drama, but yes. has that kind of drive, it, and uh, Reiner did it, Sorkin wrote it, obviously, it doesn't have the, like, cinematic weight that 
all of his movies feel in the same world of. Um, Like The Pelican Brief is a movie that everybody should go watch. It's one of his last films and is for me like the thing of the last sort of 30 years that is the most in line of these political thrillers and these kind of 70s movies. It has, I mean, the score, the drive. It's got Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts. It's wonderful. Talk about it all the time. We talk about Uh, streaming too. That movie... You know, I, I remember oh. in the very first episode of the series, I was talking to Bill Gabriel, and we were just waxing lyrical about how the Pelican Brief kind of sucks on a TV. Like it's actually mm-hmm. so deeply cinematic for a guy who's such a cinematic filmmaker. It's like there needs to be like a more retrospectives on <laughs> Pacula's life. Basically. Oh, it's, so there's a. I mean, in terms of like just foundationally of where the post started, it so much started with. It started obviously with Kay and Ben Bradley and then was Pukula because it was like trying to figure out how to fit a bit of a square peg into a round hole of wanting to do a biopic about Catherine Graham. I sort of am averse to biopics in general. Like I'm just, I think there are very few that are really good. Yeah. And so uh, that's a hard, <laughs> to just be like, I'll go right because, one. Because, then... the, because the formula sucks. Like that's what happens yeah. is people get in the trap of the formula and it's like the, those ones that can be that can skate around it and, and, and not, and, you know, I think that's a, the real talent of like just thinking of contemporary movie, like Ford versus Ferrari. Like that's like a, you know, it's got a lot of biopicish stuff, but it's like, mm-hmm. no, we're going to just anchor it in a, in a, a series of singular events or it's going to at least feel singular when we're doing it. So it's not, you're not lumbered with like, I, you know, they were born and then they had adversity right. and then the they reflect. The grave. Yeah. Like, no, it's, yeah, it feels a little, I mean, it's too structurally, I think, constricting actually because then you don't actually get to spend any time on anything that's interesting yes but it's also not relatable i mean the thing for me about biopics that are successful be it uh like i think for first ferrari is a really good example which is we're taking a very specific point in these guys lives yes and we're looking at it and that is the most relatable part of their lives be it that they are i mean i sort of think all successful biopics are coming of age movies and it's like the moment that this person is changing into another version of themselves and Ford versus Ferrari really feels like Damon's character is trying to find get his footing in the next level of his career and Christian Bale is sort of making a decision am I going to stay like a crashy old man or or young asshole (laughs) and but or am I going to like you know move to the next level and really become a professional and it's this sort of like and they butt heads into this in this movie and so I think that is like was really the challenge for me in figuring out how to do the post with Bradley's story and Kay's story. It felt very organic to be about the Pentagon Papers because it was really the moment where they became a team. Yes. Um, but it, it it wouldn't have worked without you know being obsessive about watching Pakula movies and obsessive about what that drive is. But the interesting thing about the post is like it's not a paper chase movie. No. <laughs> they have they have them. They exist. You know, it's like there there's that. That was kind of a thing when we were taught, when we were in prep for the movie. We were like, so they just kind of get them, like they just <laughs> they just are there. Uh, and and then it's a hell of a lot of those great. You know what I wanted to jump on was when you talk about your great ensemble and this great ensemble and this particular minute is this is one of the first minutes that we see the big editorial powerhouses in the same room as Redford and Hoffman. Like later on, you build up to earn. You know, Howard Simon, Harry. Yeah, we're not with Bradley. We earn the the seat at Bradley's table. 
And so when you've got Howard and you've got Harry and you've got Woodstein together and you're in Bradley's office and then they're all of them so that you've got the national leads, the Metro leads, all the editors together and those the, those fivesomes, that's where the electricity of that ensemble where you're like, oh, we got to get all these guys talking because they're all mm-hmm. great in these moments. And so I think that's what I love about yours is like as you're building up, it's like the papers, the acquisition, it's the getting. And then those uh, ensemble scenes are just the ethics like our just massive ethical quandaries, just bashing against it. Like, what do we do if we do this? Like, mm-hmm. what happens? And, and like the genius of Steven Spielberg and, and in a lot of ways, uh, you know, we talked about Pahua a lot, obviously, and there's two scenes that I feel very like connective to the typical. One is when Odekirk is on the phone yes. and it's this like amazing shot um yep. and it's, On, it's and the architecture every everything in washington looks like it's soundproof like even the buildings yeah. look like soundproof stuff that you stick on your wall like yep. and and um in scott z burns's recent the report is the same like every yeah. building looks like it's like all these Absolutely. concave weird shapes and you're like you this whole place is made for concealment i don't you know you've got your pretty monuments but the whole thing is like trying to capture sound so people can't be heard in conversations in the street like that's Absolutely. it's crazy and when we were shooting that, we actually shot that scene in um, White Plains, New York. And it was like around the corner from where we had been in an office building all day uh, or all week. And we turn around and it's like literally this DC sort of um, uh, architecture and this and a very Pakula style situation. And we were standing in the corner and I turned to Steven and I was like, this is such a Pakula shot. And he was so like touched by that. And I was one of those I've said a few things to Steven over the course of a few years where I just want to be like, you're Steven Spielberg, man. Like, come on, you know you're Steven Spielberg. But he's so actually, he's such a, a fan and lover of film and of filmmakers yeah. and of storytellers and um, quite humble in his work that um, that was like uh, such a compliment that I wasn't, I mean, it is a compliment, but I wasn't actually intended to be that uh that in, 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 of a compliment and he was really touched by it and it's because all of us really no matter what age you are if you're a filmmaker you have grown up with Pakula and you have been influenced by him and I think particularly for people who work in this sort of era and this type of storytelling there's nobody who does it better and so you're either totally screwed uh, because it's never going to be as good as his or you are lucky enough to sneak by and have nobody call you out on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's it's also so funny because, like, they're contemporaries. Like, he really bursts on the scene and Pakula has already been there. Like, he's making his huge movies and big influential movies at the time that Stephen bursts onto the scene. You know, he's making a completely different style of movie. And so, you know, they're talking about different conversations and styles and people would have unnecessarily pitted them against one another at the time that they were emerging. You know, like, going, oh, you're just the blockbuster guy and this is the guy who's making the edgy thrillers. But they would have probably been fans of each other's work and that's just how they express themselves and that's that's the reality. But, you know, the competition and the competing against each other, which, by the way, happens in this movie between Woodward and Bernstein, which I think, which, to be fair, is a little bit of uh, Bernstein's fault. But, like, I think (laughs) is, um, you know, is accurate in any medium and in any profession and is super accurate in this one and is uh, very much, you know, like, well, you couldn't like that movie because it's not the movies you make. I'm like, dude, I'm at opening night of every Fast and Furious movie. (laughs) I'm in the center of the, like... I wish I could write those movies. I just don't know how. So it's like the idea that you can only appreciate things that 
are reflective of what you're working on is crazy to me. I would be so bored if that was all I watched. And like, I don't, you know, I wrote Mindhunter. It's really dark and depressing. If people think that's all I watched for, for two years or three years, I would be, that would be even darker and it wouldn't be good by the way. So I think the, the, I, I completely agree. And I think in going back to this is like the competition. I love the scene where Bernstein just starts rewriting yes. um, uh, Woodward's work. And he's like, I'm not mad at what you did. I'm mad at how you did it. Can I ask, and it's like, this is yeah. maybe a question for you and Josh Singer. It's like, how many yeah. times did you both say that line to each other? <laughs> like during the writing of the post, it's like, Oh, I just fixed I this line. I look, Josh, I'm not mad at what you did, Josh. I'm mad at the way you did it. Like, I just please uh, <laughs> wish that that happened. I want that to have it happened. It probably did. I, it's all a bit of a blur. It probably did, but I probably Look, said it we're writing the people's history of the post right now as we're talking. It and turns think, out. As, as it turns out. So I think, you know, look, if we can get com- that confirmation from Josh, then that's what happened. That's exactly I, I will. I will get that. I'm actually seeing him in a couple of days, so I will get that. I will get that info from him. And generally, it was not because of anything he did. It was because I was just spicier about being <laughs> than he was. So um, I, it is definitely not on him that he was said that. It was definitely on my attitude. Um, but no, I, I, it's funny. You know, like you become uh, very. I think that's an interesting thing. I actually never really thought of with this movie is that like Bernstein and Woodward are very much co-writers in this, and yeah. like very much teammates on this, and. Um, are also inorganic teammates. You know, they're sort of put upon each other. That's not like they're best friends and decide to work with each other. Actually very similar to how Josh and I started working (laughs) together, which is, you know, I had never had a movie produced before, let alone a movie produced, directed, um, and directed by Steven Soberg starring Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. So there was a little bit of pressure. And uh, Josh had just... uh, Just come off the spotlight. Just come off. Just come off the spotlight. This little movie, it's totally fine. He didn't win anything for it. Um, and uh, so he came on to help with uh, the production draft and, and came on and set uh, to be the onset writer with me. And um, I definitely was at first like, whoa, 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 who's this guy? Who does he think he is? And then, you know, he starts writing and you're like, well, shit, this is, you know, <laughs> he's actually good at this. And on top of it is like uh, really – uh, we've become very, very close friends, uh, and and is really one of my closest friends um, that I have in the industry, and um, it's it's super frustrating because you just want to be mad and uh, annoyed, <laughs> it's, um, but it's it's also this I think thing that you realize, which they realize, which Woodward and Bernstein realize in this movie together is um, it's much easier if we do this together. Like we actually can do more, we can accomplish more, and we can have a more well-rounded perspective on this if we're doing it together and if we're dividing and conquering and if we're just you remove your ego from everything and you just do it to make it better i I love exactly what you said there about the ego like that's like that 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 ego moment of like and in the movie they underscore it even more than the passing line in the book because i think what's Mm -hmm. great of like it's a co-written obviously the co-written book is like woodward writes his was better Mm -hmm. and so i think Mm -hmm. it's just a moment where just going like no his was better and that that is not that's not um, a slight against me. It's like, we're working on this together. So like, just be yeah. better. Like yeah. I'll just be better. And the next time I file, I'll learn and I'll make it better. And so there's yeah. something so like, there's a great solidarity that comes in that. And I just love these two guys complimenting each other. And I love what you said. It just, it's funny that, that the moments that you think of that trigger thoughts about other parts of the movie, it's like, they're not, 
they're not identical people. Even when Bernstein, like an hour and ten minutes in this movie, finds out that he's a Republican, you know, like looks at him. It's one of my favorite. (laughs) It's like what? Like what? Like we've done hours together, you know, countless hours on the road. It's like I'm a Republican. Um, those moments too, that 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 complimentary thinking, that that stuff, I and I love it. And you know, you, I think what you explained with Josh and what people get shocked about, and it's like when you research people like Spielberg is this deeply successful guy who's like foundational to our culture is like super collaborative and just likes good ideas and doesn't really have much of an ego about where those great ideas come from. And it's more about like, let's give it a go. And you hear about it with Martin Scorsese. It's like, Oh, we'll give it a go. And people feeling more relaxed to be more collaborative, to just have the best ideas and the best version of everything. And it's just kind of, it feels counterintuitive to what you get taught about that. Like you're taught that no, they're a visionary and they're so staunch on what they've got. And then what you learn in the practicality is like, no, no, we might have a staunch vision for what is on the page, so we're going to do that. But then we'll flex, you know, to try and get the best ideas in and then we'll move on to the next thing. It's just this crazy... I think it also... It, it also you're 100% right. It's also, I think we're brought up again in this competition. Like it's, but it's so competitive to get to be a place where you're actually doing the thing that you want to do. Yes. And, but I think it's also just, he's very secure in what he does. And I think he, he's a confident person without being egotistical and without having to have everything be about him. And that I think is really, you know, this set for the post was just so calm and so collaborative. And so, you know, I mean, Janish and Stephen have been working together for 75 years and <laughs> you know, they, uh, the, the whole Adam Sumner, our assistant director, uh, had been, has been working with them, I want to say since Saving Private Ryan. So, so I mean, there's, yeah. So like so, basically yeah, 20 years on the button. Exactly. So it's just, there's a consistency to this world and the people that are in it that um, removes kind of the feeling of competition because everybody knows like this is a place where we're all making it better and nobody's ever worried about their toes getting stepped on and nobody's worried about, well, that was their idea and da, 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 da. And so it's, it's very, um, it's very, and by the way, David Fincher is very similar. You know, I, I had no idea what working with Fincher would be like. Um, I knew there'd probably be more than two takes, uh, but that was about it. and I met with David, uh, to, to come on to Mindhunter and I don't think we talked about the show at all. You know, I think we talked about like football. He's a, we're both humongous, um, sports fans. So they were just talking about sports for like an hour and a half. And then I left and I was like, I don't know if I got the job, but I <laughs> think so. We had a good, uh, we had a great chat. Like we yeah, had a really we, good chat. Um, and then what developed from that was really, I think, a, an understanding that we understood people's, understood each other sort of as people. And from that could understand how to, how to make something better or make something, um, that we both wanted to make. And, uh, and obviously had a, a number of other amazing writers on the show, um, with us. And so it's similar, you know, I just don't think there's any ego involved when you're trying to make a good project on all the bright places, the movie that. Um, February 28th uh, is uh, on Netflix. Uh, that movie, like we were rewriting that script every day. I, I was um, on set and it was Al and Justice and Brett Haley and I would be writing the, the, the scenes every morning uh, while I would be writing and they would be telling me what, how to make it better. And um, I, uh, it was all to make it better. There was no, and, and the amazing thing about that was like we had a really good script 
um, that I co-wrote with Jennifer Niven, who who is the author, the, the author of the, yep. the, uh, the author novel. And we had a great script, and it was just like, let's take an hour and make it better. And there's there's a ton of ways I could have had a huge ego about like, <laughs> no, this is what you say. Brett could have had a huge ego of like, you're going to say exactly what I want you to say. Ellen Justice could have just been like, we're not saying any of that. You know, there's <laughs> there's any uh, where this could have gone wrong. But instead, it was super collaborative and super like um, steeped in respect for each other and respect for the material and and the hope of just making it as good as we could. So I think this idea of like ego and collaboration are they're two counter they're they're counterintuitive ideas. Yes, and you can't be collaborative if you're constantly worried about getting credit or constantly worried about your own ego being satisfied, and and you can't have in my opinion, the best material unless you are being collaborative because film and television is a visual medium. And if I just wanted to write things, I would be a, a novelist, novelist or, yeah, you know, and it would sit in my drawer and I would not be successful <laughs> uh, uh, at all. And um, so I think the, the, that's something that's really interesting about all the presence in is like, it is a, is a merit, it's an arranged marriage. It's, it's a, it's not a partnership that is forged in, you know, real deep friendship. Um, and they're not actually friends. Like there's not, they don't have these moments that you, you know, they have moments throughout the movie, but they don't have these big, there's, like the, there's solidarity, but they're not mates. They don't hang out exactly. together. Exactly. Um, I will also say that I think I just realized that the scene in long shot where, O'Shea Jackson Jr. says he's a Republican might have been lifted. <laughs> I think I just realized that. I was going to say, I love O'Shea Jackson so much. And in your movie, he's so good. And that scene is, that scene made me laugh. That was the scene that made me laugh out loud in Longshot. I was like, what? <laughs> what? It's, it's just so I, I, I love that scene. For people who haven't seen it, I'm not going to ruin for you what happens. You should just watch it. Um, I'm, it's probably on Netflix or you could buy it somewhere. Uh, you can but, buy it somewhere, uh, but I would probably bet, I'm going to bet money that if it's not on Netflix, it'll be there by February 28th. So that in the algorithm, there you go. once you've there watched, you go. I bet you, yeah. all, the, um, all the bright places, you're going to go, Oh, cool. What's up? Yep. What's up next? Mind Hunter and the long shot. <laughs> That's going to be a really interesting, uh, triptych for them. I'm just going to say, <laughs> um, um, but yeah, I think, uh, uh, I think that scene might have been affected by all the presence men. That's an interesting discovery I just made. <laughs> See? Th- new things you learn every day. New things you learn right now and in this movie and in this scene. Um, one final question, I guess, that I wanted to talk to you about or one final sort of element that I wanted to talk to you about is because you've, you know, because this was inspired out of that moment and there was that urgency from Amy Pascal that you discussed early on, it's like, this movie now continues in 2020 as another election is coming up. Mm-hmm. And as we're talking today, it is the 5th of February in Australia. It's still the 4th mm-hmm. of February in America. And there's a whole debacle in Iowa right now about a Democratic caucus that is just like spitting out content and confusion and like baffling political, uh, you know, uh, like filibuster victory laps when no one even knows what the hell's going on. Why do you think... Oh, I'm sorry. Did you say that the Democratic Party was disorganized? Oh, oh sorry. Sorry. I was, that was, sorry, just, sorry. Just, to be, just to be clear. Yeah, okay. Um, sorry. Uh, sorry yeah. Why, why do you think, you know, 
why do you think these movies, you know, and, and having that, that sort of these movies like ethical quandaries about relationship between journalism and politics, like the post and presidents, why are these now like comfort food in our lives? Like what, is it just the overwhelming flood of information that we get that like when people are actually stopping, pausing, deciding what, what the right thing to do is with this information, is that just like what we're completely missing in our day to day? being bombarded yeah. with things is that like your feeling of it because i never thought i'd hear yes. it but i'm now with you know this is now the you know this is now the 19th minute of the show um and mm. i keep hearing oh it's a it's it's like comfort food and like no this isn't meant to be comfortable it's meant to be scary no by the way richard nixon gets <laughs> uh gets uh, is almost impeached and richard nixon has to leave the white house because of this um and resign from office so I don't know how to call it comfort food, but um, I mean, sure, comfort food because he he shouldn't have been president. But um, I, I, you know, I I do I truly believe it's because we live in a world now where nobody knows what there is no like definition of right and wrong. Um, Tom Hanks said something really great when we were doing the press tour of the Post, uh, which is super sad, but I think very accurate. Which is the North Star is no longer North anymore. And there is no um, agreement on what true and false is. Yes. And um, it's very disheartening to be somebody who, um, look, frankly, like I grew up in a super patriotic family. Uh, my father was in the military. My grandfather was a career Marine. I uh, grew up in a very liberal household where the Kennedys and um, basically every liberal from the 60s was on our walls. So it's super weird that I wrote a movie about them. Um, but uh, I... And, and for me, it's just it's a disintegration of the values that I grew up with. And I think uh, all of us hopefully grew up with or the smart, articulate, non insane ones did. <laughs> and so I think I think, um, I, I, I think uh, watching all the president's men is like, oh, the, the good guys won and the truth won out. And the it's also an underdog movie. It's the story of, you know, these two guys who like really, you know, one of my favorite scenes in the movie we haven't talked about is like the first scene that Ben Bradley is looking at their, their article the and he's redlining it Ugh. and he's in a tuxedo and mm -hmm. he like looks so dope and they're just, <laughs> and, and they just keep looking at, they like keep staring at him like, oh my God, Ben Bradley is reading something I've written and like they keep kind of like looking over at each other and Dustin Hoffman's so great in it. You can tell that he's just obsessed with Bradley he's and freaking loves out. He's, he's freaking out in yeah. that scene. Such a good performance by him to be so deeply so freaked great. out. It's so great. Um, but like these are two guys who were not, you know, they, they weren't the heroes. They weren't the ones who were um, getting the call to do this. They were the ones who randomly got this call because nobody else was interested in it. Yes. And because Redford was in the right place at the right time to, you know, be in, in, in uh, court. But so um, I think it's about underdogs. And I think in terms of the post, you know, when we went, made that movie again, it came out in um, the end of 2017. And then again, it, it was like December 2017 and January 2018, it went wide and we were entering year two of the travesty that is uh, the presidency of the last four years. And, um, we're really not thinking it would last this long. Yeah. Uh, at least I wasn't, you know, I really, I, I, not just, I don't want to speak for everybody. I'll just say I, I did not anticipate, you know, I would have hoped we could get to, um, an impeachment process because just spoiler alert, he broke the law about 9,000 times before, you know, the last, 
Um, spoiler alert. <laughs> I don't think it's a spoiler but, at this point. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I, I had anticipated potentially getting there, but um, it took this long and it's it's not going well. And so it's really, it's just, it's you don't see bravery apparently anymore um, for what's right. You see politics and you see um, this fundamental disinterest in um the truth and and you know i i been watching of course the impeachment trial constantly and and you, you these republicans sort of yesterday um a couple of them said that he like did do that trump did do something wrong um and that but it's but it's not worth should, impeaching and you're like yeah, but it's not worth it and it's like well but you just said he did something like he did then he did then he should be impeached you said he did something wrong so if the law's been um, broken, like there you go. That's there's not, not a there's not really a gray area in that. So I do think in this it's sad, uh, but I now have come around to the idea that these movies being comfort food because it's nice to see, you know, that truth still exists. You know, the irony of the post is that um, a lot of Republicans really like it um, <laughs> and don't find the connection. Uh, to what we were trying to say. So, you know... uh, But also, I don't think you're saying something... This is what's good about both movies, is that people people quickly shared their political allegiances for what's right and wrong in this movie. Both movies. Yes, yes. You actually argue what is right and what is wrong. What is right for us to say is this. Yes. It 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 is more powerful for us to contend with the truth than it is to... Than it is to just accept that. Oh, okay. Well, my political allegiance is one way, and that's that's everyone. That's the amazing bookkeeper. That's Hugh Sloan. That's you know, so Jane Alexander and um and Stephen Collins, and and you know, it's it's and then you know, Penny Fuller, Sally Aitken, like spilling the beans on, you know, who wrote the Canuck letter. It's like people did illegal mm-hmm. stuff, and just because I might have a political allegiance or a friendship allegiance, it's like it's wrong. It's like yeah. it's it's wrong, and so we have to treat it that it's wrong and hold them to account. And so I think that a lot of time what's happening in the modern conversation is that people people's allegiances are first and like it, it takes so much longer to get to what is morally right about something. Yeah, and that should be really the first conversation and potentially the only conversation. Yeah, is, what's, what's right and uh, wrong? What's right and wrong. And I think the thing I'm really proud of of the post is that uh, I mean, there's a, there's a number of things I'm really proud of, but one of them is that we did make a movie about how it is hard to make that decision. It is not easy to make the morally right decision at all times. No. It is, uh, you will put yourself, uh, potentially your family, your company, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> I was just about to do the line, <laughs> whatever the, line, the, 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 um, the, uh, Paulson line in the movie. Uh, but so you could put all those things in jeopardy. Um, but at the end of the day, it's you are then um, you are then choosing to say that it is right that what is wrong is right if you don't act on it, and that I think is the line that I try and hold myself accountable to, and I think we all should hold ourselves accountable to again, like regardless of affiliation, regardless of friendship, regardless of political party, um, you know, and and I don't mean to say that all Republicans, by the way, are um, Trump supporters. So I'm not, I don't want to put them in that Venn diagram, but I am surprised when um, Trump supporters like the post. It's, it's a slightly precarious, a curious question. Or I, curious I think it just, I think, it, I think it probably leads into, you know, 
it, there's a whole other conversation that we could have, but I think it like just from you, we can try and look at it the most empathetic lens. It's like people know what right and wrong is, and for whatever reason, you vote for a guy because you think it's going to be positively disruptive, like lots of yeah. things that happen in the world, and then you yeah. actually see the nuts and bolts what's happening, and you're like, nope. that was that was a bad decision and and people don't like to say that they're wrong even when they're wrong (laughs) yeah when they're really wrong i mean i think people actively when they don't want to say when they know they're wrong um but no and by the way i'm not saying like i'm perfect or or that i'm uh, standing on a moral high ground i don't think i don't don't think anyone who's hearing this is thinking that by the way that i just good well by the way they're like no i listened to you for 45 minutes i know you're (laughs) definitely not no i just i just i don't think that's the case but i just it's uh, look you said one thing two things that were deeply right o'shea jackson jr is amazing and ben bradley looks yeah you know you know ben bradley as robots in that soup is dope like there's the like that is I, I think about that so much. I think, could I ever pull off a suit like that? Could I ever put my feet so with such swagger on a table and cross things out in red pen? I don't think I'll ever be that cool he in my entire life. so much swagger. <laughs> it's just, it's so crazy. It's stupid. It's like, stupid. It was when Hank signed on to do the movie, we, we had a long conversation because he was like, how do I do this after Robards? And and he actually had a dinner one time with Robards and, um, and or no, excuse me, not Robards. He had a dinner with, no, was it Robards? Now I can't remember if it was Bradley or Robards, but he met Ben Bradley once and he had, I think, a dinner with Robards and he's like, he was the coolest man that ever existed. Like just, (laughs) and so like him playing Bradley was really easy because he was just like, I'm playing another cool dude. It's fine. Um, But I, uh, yeah, I, I definitely am never going to be as cool as Ben Bradley or Jason Robards. (laughs) I'm comfortable with that. Well, that has been the 19th minute of all the president's minutes covering the amazing All the Presidents Men with the awesome Liz Hanna. Liz, writer of The Post, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. This has been a ripper of a conversation. And uh, and I feel like we're just like one step closer to like actually having um, uh, the, the, the project ticking many bucket lists with you being on the show because uh, having someone who's so deeply uh, familiar with the everything about this movie uh from the post and everything about this time it's just really cool to talk to you and you've you know you've written words for characters who are in this movie so it's very very cool um very very cool to chat to you that's scary i'm sorry i'm sorry to scare but thank you so much for being a part of the part of the show and i really appreciate it thank you for having me Thank you so much to the incredible liz hannah for being a part of the show if you want to follow liz you can find her on twitter at at it's Liz Hannah. That's the best place to find her. Of course, the post is available on streaming, as is Longshot, as is her brand spanking new film on Netflix, All the Bright Places. And you can also check out her other show, The Dropout, on Hulu. Liz, thank you so much for your generosity. Really appreciate it. And uh, give Liz a follow, huh? Thank you so much again for listening to All the President's Minutes and anything on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and producer of Increment Vice, as well as everything that's been happening on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. If you want to follow me, simply go to at OneBlakeMinute on Instagram and on Twitter, or to OneHeatMinute.com to find out everything that's happening with the show and about the show. If you guys want to support us, we have a link on OneHeatMinute.com to our Patreon. 
If you can spare even a couple of bucks a month, the cost of a coffee a month you are going to be contributing to this show, The Amazing Increment Vice, and any other amazing shows that are a part of One Heat Minute Productions. Thank you so much in advance. If you can't support us, you don't have the cash, that's totally fine. But please subscribe, rate, review, and share the shows. We would love, if you are digging the show, share them with like-minded film folk around the place. Thank you so much once again for listening to this episode. We'll catch you on another episode of All the President's Minutes and another episode in the One Heat Minute Productions feed very soon.